And so it's different than an egregore. It's different than a tulpa. There, like I said before, there is this symbiotic relationship between us and this phenomenon. And I don't, I don't want to get too deep here, uh, but we do become a mortal portal. And if I may say this, I don't, we don't have to go down this direction, but it's not just symbiotic, it's embryonic. Okay. And, and sooner or later, we're going to realize, and I know I have at least, I'm sure you have too, that there is a, a series of self-replication methods that the phenomenon employs. It's not just to survive, but, uh, and I'll tell you this, the only model I've found to date that is closest to the phenomenon, and it, it's parasitic, seeks a host. Mm. And so that's where I'm at. Hello and welcome to the Spirit Box podcast, where we explore folklore, magic, the world of the spirits and everything in between. Today we welcome Nathaniel Gillis back to the show, I think for the fifth time, um, which may, I think that means it's between him and, and um, Phil Hine, who who have been the most uh, frequent guests on the show. Anyway, um Nate is an author and religious demonologist with over two decades of work under his belt uh, following his experience, his childhood experience in a haunted house. We'll get into that in the show. He's actively redefined the understanding of the haunting phenomena. He's really he's really shone a light into the corners where a lot of people, researchers just don't go. You know, he's got an intellectual curiosity which will really come across in, in today's show. And he has a very unique perspective on the demonic, emphasizing that the reason they're playing by different rules is because they're playing a different game. And what he means by that is that we really don't understand what their motivations are. And they may not be as simple as just to corrupt the human soul in defiance of of, of God. It's That might be missing the point of what's actually happening. So Nathaniel really brings a, a unique twist to his exploration of the devil, of demons, of unclean spirits. And in his research, he suggests a potential connection between these supernatural entities and aliens. This unconventional perspective really expands the boundaries of traditional demonology and explores the intersections between the different realms of the paranormal, which really makes it perfect for Spirit Box. I hope you're going to enjoy this. Now, in the show, we get into hybridism, the succubi, the incubi, and Nathaniel posits the notion that the demons engage in a form of self-replication through a process involving hybridism. So according to this concept, these supernatural entities are believed to create hybrid brings through interactions with humans in nighttime encounters where they deceptively present themselves as particularly attractive and seductive humans. Now, this unconventional theory suggests there's a link between the demonic realm and some sort of unique form of reproduction. And in the Plus show, Nathaniel really lands his thoughts on this uh, on this, this thesis. And he really gets into some deep stuff around hybridism that the first half of, of the show was really kind of setting up this, this uh, big reveal. And we get into how the self-replication happens. And to quote Nathaniel, possession to us is pregnancy to them. And to close out, Nathaniel gives us a, an overview into some of the cases he's investigated as well. It's really, really fascinating stuff. And, um, you know, a, a step change for Spirit of Box to close out the year. So I think you're going to enjoy this. Uh, do check out the links below. 
Um, Nathaniel is, is doing a lecture series in Bolton near Manchester in the UK in February. So if you like the show, then be sure to, to check that out. The links are all in the show notes. Now, if you want to hear the Plus show, really straightforward to do. Check the links in the show notes and come and join the Patreon. It's really that simple. Not only will you get the Plus show here, but you get a whole wealth of essays, bonus shows, a whole raft of stuff. And uh, if that sounds like your bag, then come and join come and join the fam. Um, if it doesn't sound like your bag, then give me the old five stars. It'll cost you nothing. All right, um, I'm going to leave it there. Let's get on with the show. Gillis, it is. Oh, how many times have you been on? Been on quite a few times now. Numerous times, yes, sir. We go way back, my man. Yeah. We go way. Back. We certainly do. So, yeah, you're uh, you're one of the Spirit Box OGs. You were on Spirit Box before it was Spirit Box. Before it figured um, that one out. That's how. That's how uh, early early days you were. Um, matter, matter of fact, my friend, I, if I can, if I, if this is correct, and I'm not like exaggerating or or misrepresenting it, I can remember one of our shows. We recorded it. You published it, and yeah. somebody liked it so much they commented, "You should probably start your own podcast." And, oh, yeah, and look yeah. what you—that does sound you've familiar. Congrats, man! You've done an incredible job on the channel, and of course, uh, just as a as a person and a researcher, I hold you in the highest regard, my friend. Oh, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm back at you. You know, uh, you've, you've got a remarkable area of research which I'm looking forward to to going through now. Um, this evening um how are you what have you been up to oh man i'm busy 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 uh you know as as you know and you'll you'll probably tell everybody at the end of the show i'll be doing a lecture tour in february manchester never been to the uk before never even been out of my country before but uh i'll be lecturing alongside of some of the best researchers Brilliant. and i'm biased but if not the best researchers in the world so um they're incredible. They're my heroes. But uh, yeah, so been extremely busy. I've got to do six lectures there, and we're going to do some uh, filmography. It's good. But between that and interviews like we're doing right now and then research, yeah. I'm swamped, brother. Swamped. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds fantastic. And uh, we'll have to get into a bit more detail as to kind of uh, what you're doing in Manchester and, and when you're going to be there. Certainly a lot of people who listen to this show will be up that neck of the woods. Um, so- so just in terms of refreshing everybody's, you know, familiarity with, with your work, could you give a, a brief introduction into your world? Yeah, so my discipline has been demonology from the academic perspective. I'm not a practitioner. You know, I, I don't go out there and conjure these beings, but I, I have always been fast and i was going to say interested but it's a little bit more passionate than that fascinated by the darker nuances of the phenomenon and um, here in the last few years what i've been doing is searching for any and all interconnectivities between demonology and ufology now i gotta place a caveat there because people hear that and next thing you know and they kind of you know they, they throw me like they throw the baby out with the bathwater. And uh, I want to step back and say this, you know, my hypothesis is not that these are demons uh, or aliens for that matter. My hypothesis is that we're dealing with a singular intelligence that has masked itself throughout recorded history. 
And so it's a little bit more nuanced and complicated than what m many people would like to suggest it is. But uh, that has been my focus as of late, trying to understand more about the phenomenon and make these interconnectivities real. Fascinating. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting into that now. Um, I'm just back from um, doing my own kind of lecture series uh, wow. in, in the north of England. I suppose not too far from Manchester um, on on the gin. And one of the one of the areas I was speaking to a bit briefly, but, but, but just pulling up the similarity between the gin and, and fairies and, and kind of mm -hmm. some of the, the, the some of the experiences that people have or the things that are associated with them. And quite mm -hmm. rightly, one of the one of the audience um, pointed out very similar with um, with aliens, right? You know, very similar crossover yeah. points. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's interesting, you know, it is, to me, it's apparent that the phenomenon is evolving according to our awareness of it. And so there is this kind of symbiotic relationship that it has with us as a species. And we've seen that in different case studies. But uh, it's strange because in each, and, in each and every incarnation of the phenomenon, it will reincorporate certain agendas back into the fold. And so that's why even though the mask has changed uh, and even though it has diversified its image, identity, origin, and disguise in a sense, you will see different agendas that it reincorporates back into their program. So that, that's, it's, it's interesting, it's fascinating, but it's one of the more obvious behavioral patterns that uh, my colleagues and I have uh, noticed. Yeah, that that's really fascinating, and and this is where one of the areas that I really really enjoy and find so interesting about your research is 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 how you come at it from a from a very different angle. Um, you know, I when you look at that crossover between like the idea of the behavior of demons, the the I guess the so-called uh, um, ambitions, what we believe are the um, motivations of demons, and then kind of marry that ac across what's happening in the UFO world. It's a, it's a, it's just an area of investigation that I haven't seen much of at all. You right. know, it's, it's really really unique in that area. So I guess what, the question I wanted to ask is, what what set all that off? What what kind of <laughs> what was the what was the what was the first domino to go down for you? So my very first encounter with whatever this is we're researching, it occurred when I was eight years old. My parents were taking a tour of a house that they were potentially buying. And uh, I can remember my dad taking me by the hand, leading me into my room, which would become my future room. And uh, he said, take a look around Nathaniel, figure out, you know, in case we are going to buy it, figure out where you're going to place all your stuff. I'm like, all right, cool. So they went into the uh, kitchen, cracked open a nice cold Coke, and hung out with the realtor. So while they're doing all that, taking a tour, I'm in there like, all right, dude, got the mirror, or got, got you know, put my mirror here, got my bed over here, my gaming system. And what was so interesting about that experience, at, at, at the very first moment I entered into that room, I was met with this stench. It was 
you, you, you hear parapsychologists describe it as rotting or decomposing organic matter. That was exactly it to a T. It smelled like death. And what's troubling to me is I've never smelled death before, but when I inhaled it through my nostrils, that's immediately what I thought of. Right. And yet there was virtually nothing in the room at all. I mean, the only thing, there was no, no cabinet or no cabinet, there were no, no chest or drawers, nothing. The closet was empty. It was just carpet. And then on the right side of the room was a bed. That's it. But um, upon entering the room, like I said, I, I inhaled this stench. Even more than that, there was a presence lingering in that room. And uh, I, I felt it immediately, my friend. I mean, it was like, wait a minute, something's here. Doesn't like that I'm here. And I felt watched. Right. But um, as I, I opened up the closet, kind of take a look at everything, taking it all in, looking out the window. For some reason, and, and this happened when I'm eight years old, I'm 35, and to this day, I cannot articulate, I have no idea why it is that I felt compelled to do this. But I knelt down on all fours, and I pulled the, uh, the, the blanket up over the bed, and I'm looking underneath the bed. I still, again, I, like I said, I, I have no idea why I did it. Like, when I think about it now, I'm like, what an idiot. Why would I do that? <laughs> well, when I did that, I was uh, met face-to-face -face with a full-bodied apparition of a little girl. Right. She was maybe a year or two younger than I was at the time. She uh, was in pale complexion, long black hair, was wearing a white linen dress that, that looked to have been made during the turn of the century. So it was very dated. But um, at that point, bam, I dropped that blanket and I beelined to my parents. I didn't say a word. I'm just sitting there like, oh, my God, what is this? But uh, once we moved into the house, I realized that uh, that little girl did not belong anywhere near. Not just that house, but the neighborhood itself. Right. I don't like I mean, I'm talking like I, I remember discussing this subject matter with the neighbors and I'm talking house to house. You know, they would have parties house to house. I'd ask them, you know, have you, have you ever heard of a little girl like this? Did, has she lived here in the last 50 years? No. And so that was disturbing because I'm thinking, what, you know, am I crazy? Am I imagining this? What's going on? Yeah. But upon moving into the house itself, uh, that entity proved not to be a little girl at all. It was a malevolent being that had manifested as something innocent in order to kind of create this friendship or at least to manipulate me, mm -hmm. child. And so that's when that was my very first experience with this phenomenon, number one. And number two, that was my very first encounter with the deceptive nature of what we're discussing. And uh, that's why I'm here. Yeah, and it's that deceptive nature that um, I think like a lot of, people in this field you know sleep on um and like it it, it it's very easy to get the the wall pulling over your eyes um mm -hmm. I, I i've been kind of doing a lot of spirit work for for a couple of years now and i still you know there's still part of me <laughs> <laughs> that goes i'm <laughs> just being bullshitted you know like it's 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 really hard to to get a bead on things um so that that, that that's no surprise but I, like 
that idea of presenting in a certain form is mm-hmm. is so interesting um particularly like, like i said i have just spent the, the weekend talking about the gin you know yeah and, yeah you got all that literature and those yeah. points and you're it's like, still all spinning around in my head you're like me like i'm, how, I'm like okay i just read uh uh, Masquerade, how can I reincorporate this in the conversation? So, no worries, but you're right. I didn't want to interrupt you, brother, but you were saying, you want to go in the direction of gin? We can go there too, man. No, no um, not at all. I mean, it's just, it's it's the shape-shifting thing, you know, that kind of the, the deception and, and um, like, I guess what, where I'm kind of circling around to is, is but there's been a huge, huge, um, I guess, mainstream kind of interest in in aliens over the last Okay, my year to 18 months, you know, we've been seeing all the disclosure stuff. Um, those weird little kind of like paper mache looking aliens down in Mexico, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. I mean, they, they look like giant jelly babies, they look like they're just coated. In, I mean, yeah, you know, who yeah. might to say, you know, there might be death. I can't say anything. I, I know people that know all about that and know him personally, and so I'm, yeah. I'm on about it myself, yeah, yeah. So, what. What are your thoughts about all this, you know, all this activity, you know, all this, all this focus on things? Because the, the reason I'm kind of asking it is, is that it, I'm coming from that focus point of like, or that trigger point rather of like deception and subterfuge, you know, mm-hmm. is there an, an undercurrent of that underpinning everything that we're, we're, we're seeing, we're experiencing at the moment? I think so. Uh, with respect to the disclosure movement, you know, I don't think they're going to disclose anything. Right. And, you know, I think that, and this is just my perspective, according to my, or according to what I understand and as I understand it, much of this is dark stuff. It's not all love and light. And if they're going to come out and verbalize and confirm the insecurities of the human condition and the fears of the masses and say, hey, listen, yes, there are ships out there that they're transcending every known microcosm. They, they'll, they'll show up on radar, but when you get to them, they're not there. You know, what that would mean is, is not only that we are not the master of our own airspace, but those ships have occupants. And it opens up a discussion to possibly the most problematic and disturbing aspect of the phenomenon, which is abductions, kidnappings essentially. And uh, to confirm one, it's secondary consequence is to confirm the other. And so I believe, at least like I said, as, as, as I understand it, it's not going to happen. And even a lot of this stuff with, with Russia and everything, a lot of this stuff, they're, they're, they're originating from black budgets. And, and, and I have friends that are former DARPA, and they've told us that. They've told me that. So there is kind of this movement within i guess i should say the deep state and i'm not a you know conspiracy theorist but uh yes men in dark suits will not let this get out because you know the nature of the phenomenon it's not ju- and they're learning this very quickly and the Collins elite knew this in the 50s uh, but the nature of the phenomenon is not solely nuts and bolts but there is an esoteric value present not just that but there is a, an esoteric value to this stuff. It's not just technology. There is a measure of sorcery, a measure of magic in a sense. And uh, I think that uh, our government does not have handcuffs large enough 
to to handicap whatever this phenomenon is. And so, like I said before, to acknowledge this, you've got to acknowledge that. And if you acknowledge that, that is it's going to create an ontological shock, and you're going to have a lot of people like freaking out. <laughs> yeah. I get that, and, and look, at, and especially, you know, if you look at UFOs as the way, kind of you you connect them to like the the, the wider like phenomena that that's been right. haunting humanity for for well since we've been here. Um, it's not just nuts and bolts. It's not just there's aliens out there. So, but there's aliens in here, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a far more frightening proposition. Weirdly, I noticed. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Hey, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll, I'll follow up with you. Go ahead. Because weirdly, I noticed people are almost nonchalant about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like the government uh, in, in the US are, are discussing these things kind of relatively openly. Um, the release of videos, the tick, what they call them, the tic tac videos, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, like people are fairly nonchalant about it. No one's, no one's like, oh my god, you know, my world's changing. Right. They're fairly nonchalant about that. But what I think with your thesis of, of how you're looking at both these phenomena, yeah. uh, you've got the kind of like the the extraterrestrial, you know, um, who is external to this world and to us, but mm-hmm. then you're actually just you know marrying that up with this in this terrestrial force that we do not understand that is malevolent and we are extremely vulnerable to it in in ways that we can't even imagine you know i am not a proponent of the et hypothesis or the eth as it's known um you know if we're going to believe they're ets then we've got to believe they're all guides they're all dear aunt edna's they're all ghosts they're all demons and uh, essentially they're every mask they've ever incarnated into uh you know we can't exclude those and so what what i've been thinking about as of late is that when we look at the cognitive interfaces the phenomenon has employed throughout history it almost forces us and i, I know this is a I'm not trying to use big words, but it, it's the only it's the only word that fits. And almost like a, a a very nebulous sociological scenario where it will manifest as an archetype, as a role, as a former lover, as a person of authority, as a religious figure. And it forces the experiencer into this strange paradigm where the implication is, number one, I am appearing as this. But it doesn't mean a thing unless you believe I am who I am appearing to be. If you don't believe it, it's pointless and it doesn't matter. And so in a lot of my case studies, and not just mine, but Montague Summers, Father Sinister Epimino, uh, Bernard of Gordon, one demonologist. It's almost like there's this, this mating game, in a sense, where belief plays such a prof- profound role in these interactions. Like, I, I was working with a lady not too long ago who, and it's strange, but those who know abduction research, it's just 
it's obvious and it's prevalent in the field. But she said that when she was young, this is like in the 70s, I believe, that her whole worldview, her lifestyle consisted of, um, you know, reading comic books and watching cartoons. And she said that when these beings manifested to her, they manifested to her in the image of a cartoon. And I know people just say, that's, that's crazy. It's really not when you, like I said, getting into the abduction research, it's, it's very much prevalent. But what, what struck me, it was it's so fascinating. She said that it manifested to her in her favorite cartoon. And, and they took her and, and did things and stuff. But, but she said that for a long time, like a, for a long period of time, rather, they never returned. And so during this time frame, she's getting older. She went to another grade in school. You know, she's, she's older. She's, she's growing. She's taller. And she said that everything began to change for her. She's no longer reading the comic books as much. She's, matter of fact, she's probably not even watching cartoons, especially not that other cartoon. And so she, she's evolving. She's growing into womanhood. And she said then one night, a couple of years later, they appear to her in the room. But guess what? As the cartoon. And she says, now, this is hilarious to me. She says, now, Nathaniel, I'm this tall. Now, it's this tall. And now I'm looking down at it. And this, what I'm about to tell you, what I'm about to tell you, it demonstrates such a strange pathology that uh, it's going to take a lot of people by surprise. Because I know, and I, I read a lot of abduction literature, it took me by surprise because I thought, wait a minute, there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. She said that when she's interfacing with this entity, that she's looking down at it, and the entity is kind of reading the tea leaves, uh, feeling her out in the sense of, okay, do you believe I am your favorite card? Do you believe I am who I appear to be? And so as this entity is looking around the room and noticing things and different changes uh, in her behavior and everything, it realizes that there is a certain measure of disbelief in her. And she said that's when its eyes begin to move back and forth. And this is the quote. It was measuring her belief in that image. And when it caught it, it's gone. Now it has to go and figure out, okay, what else can I manifest as? So, and that's not the only case that I've heard of where belief does play a major role in this. But, uh, you know, what's also interesting about this particular case study is, is why would an alien, I'm not going to, to assume I know what aliens would do it, but let's just work with this current model if we, should, if we can. Why would an alien traverse light years just to measure the belief system of an individual. This gets back to this cognitive interface of what I call the temptation of belief. And in some cases, there are experiencers who, when they bite and they're enchanted by this image, it's almost like this kind of, uh, I call it permissive, well, I don't want to say consent, 
but it kind of induces them into the stage where now that entity has freedom. If you believe I am your ex-boyfriend, I'll step into that role and fulfill that to a certain degree. And so what, what I've noticed along with other researchers is that when you push back on the mask, when you say, okay, listen, this doesn't make sense, the phenomenon is forced to improvise. And in many cases, it does not have that faculty to do that. That's super interesting. Super interesting. One of the things that um, comes up again and again when, when people discuss um, like some aspects of, of, of this kind of research, um, particularly around ideas of like the Watchers or Nephilim or mm -hmm. like, the, like the, the, the archonic view of things where they, uh, you know, where we're in a universe where we're, we're kind of ruled or, or shepherded by, by beings that don't have creativity that that mm. um have made a you know a, like a, a a carbon copy of the original mm. universe and we inhabit we inhabit, inhabit that copy um mm. but human beings have have the power of creativity and these beings don't um mm -hmm. that idea of kind of belief being kind of um the engine of deception it, it kind oh, of it, yeah. it, it almost leaches into creativity as well, you know, because it's it's the it's our own creativity that empower, that empowers belief to a degree. You know, I, I'm, it's kind of a clunky sentence, but you know, you know what I'm trying to get to. Like it's it's yes. our our creative imagination can really, really kind of um, empower what we believe. Yes, and there is the symbiotic relationship. Be and I, I still have not been able to verbalize this accurately. You know, sometimes we don't have the vocabulary, my friend. It's just like, okay, <laughs> does it make sense? No. Well, that's all I got today, guys. But uh, you know, there is this concept of of being born of belief. You know, in antiquity, there were certain demons that were not malevolent in and of themselves. And I'm, I'm not talking about daemon, I'm talking about demon, D-E-M-O-N, where uh, we see this in Mesopotamian text and ritual bowls where uh, certain paranormal activity would manifest in someone's house. And so uh, this, this individual would go to a blacksmith and say, okay, listen, I want you to create this demon for me. He's going to be used as an amulet. And so the blacksmith would say, okay, this is, this is incredible. The blacksmith would say, okay, do you have the dimensions of this entity? And from the imagination, in the mind of that individual who owns the house, they would say, yes, it's this tall, it's this color, it's this wide, and I want you to make it with this metal. And, and so when that blacksmith was finished with this metallic object, the individual would then take it to his house place it in a room that was designated for it, go to bed at night. Now, this is pretty disturbing when you think about it. And that entity would begin to break out of that metallic idol or object, and it was born. Now, what's fascinating about this, at least to me personally, is that long before the blacksmith molded the image of the entity, 
it's almost as if the entity molded the mind of that man. This is what I look like. And then it carries over, create me. And so it's different than an egregore. It's different than a topa. There, like I said before, there is this symbiotic relationship between us and the phenomenon. And I don't, I don't want to get too deep here, uh, but we do become a mortal portal. And if I may say this, I don't, we don't have to go down this direction, but it's not just symbiotic, it's embryonic. Okay. And, and sooner or later, we're going to realize, and I know I have at least, I'm sure you have too, that there is a, a series of self-replication methods that the phenomenon employs. It's not just to survive, but, uh, and I'll tell you this, the only model I've found to date that is closest to the phenomenon, and it, it's parasitic, seeks a host. Mm. And so that's where I'm at. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think what, one of the things that we have to kind of get our heads around collectively is when we think parasite, we tend to think in physical terms, you know, right. rather than actually the you know parasite or the imagination, you know. Yeah. Um, um, and we can see the the kind of impact of that um, being vampirized in that way, and it, it can come out in art. It can come out in 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 our creativity, our creativity can serve as a battery to bring that out into the world and infect all those imaginations. Right. Um, yeah, it's extraordinary stuff. Um, yeah, I know I probably picked trail, but you know the thing is, my friend, when you when you start diving headfirst into different labyrinths, you you start to you land, I should say, you land at the base of the phenomenon. You look up. You were like, wait a minute, I didn't know I was going to be here. You know, and so that's what's so difficult when you're, you're studying demonology. You're not just studying folklore. You're studying experiences that are kind of calcified in, in mythopoetic thought. You know, we, we did not have text messaging. We did not have Facebook or Instagram. And so, so what our ancestors had essentially was holding their babies near a campfire and telling them ghost stories, not fake ghost stories, real experiences to them. Yeah. And so when, when I started reading demonological literature, what struck me so profound, I thought, oh my God, you know, these were real events to these people, yeah. but they were events that were interpreted according to their cultural lens. That does not mean they did not experience something. And, and if I may, the sad thing is we have a lot of people, especially in the field, that will frown on demonology. And, and if I may go as far to say this, there's a lot of people that, that will go to Trader Joe's or go to their favorite grocery store and see a bumper sticker on the back of a Jeep and think, I like that. That makes sense. And they'll use that kind of philosophy with respect to demonology and you can't do it, you know. But uh, what I always tell people when I mentor them is that that demonology as a, a field of study must be understood within the larger context of the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Only then can you really tackle the subject in a germane way. One thing that I, I know, I know you've been doing a huge amount of, of research of, of, of late and, and, and getting into some real dark territory. Um, mm -hmm. And I was wondering, is there any kind of some of the, the either the experiences that you've, had recounted to you or some of the areas that you've been you know uh, working on on doing um 
cleansing and, and and what have you at a you know what's what's been going on for you have you any well i'm more interested in the esoteric interconnectivities with this intelligence if we go back into the early 50s the earliest ufologists or experiencers yeah. were people like george uh hot williamson who was making Ouija boards and contacting extraterrestrials with it. Same thing with George Adamski, Albert Bender. These guys were quite literally building altars in their attics, mm -hmm. trying to contact what? Spirits or extraterrestrials? And this is just another corollary between these fields of, of research but it, I think, to me, it kind of points the finger back at the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Because not only were these beings claiming to be extraterrestrial, but the rituals they were responding to originated in Mesopotamian ritual bowls and texts. What exactly is going on here? And that's why uh, just I, I believe 100% that the ETH, that model, is just another facade, uh, which is it's a, it's a tool of propaganda designed right. to, to get our attention off of the true nature of this phenomenon. These are altars. What kind of altars? Not just any altars, my friend, but they're earthen altars where the stones that, that make the altar, make up the altar, are uncut. Why? What's really going on here? And so it, it, it buggers my mind, if I, should, if I could say, because it's another interconnectivity that points all the way back to texts that many researchers, if they're not ignorant of, they just ignore it. And, and that's what I've been researching as of late. You know, long before these beings were hovering over missile silos, they were responding to lonely people in the middle of the night who had created altars. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it's a very unique nuance to this research. When we, when you say all altars, do you, mm -hmm. do you mean like, um, like straight up altars yep. with chalice and candles? You know, if we were looking at it, it in, in a at least the altar. Yeah. So, yeah. what's so interesting about this as well is that usually. You see the Ouija board used in the context of seances, specifically designed to contact the deceased, discarnate, demons, if you will, demons, familiars. Uh, when you see these experiencers, ufologists employ this in such a way, it makes me question if these are extraterrestrials at all. You know, it's not that they're manifesting or even responding to NASA. They, they were responding to liturgical rites that, that not only uh, kind of encapsulated uh, the, the media movement, the esoteric movement, but they were responding to the same liturgical rites that spirits were. Matter of fact, if I can go into this, real quick and if i pick trail if i ramble just tell me to shut up and i'll, I'll be quiet <laughs> but in the 1990s during the skull experiment they were uh trying to conjure spirits they had us they had seances and stuff they had one seance 
on the first floor, another seance in the basement. And uh, they conjured a litany, litanies of, of, of various manifestations. But in those seances, <laughs> there was this being that manifested to them. And they call it Mr. Blue. He has bulbous eyes and he looks like an alien gray. Mm. Huh? Matter of fact, with John D. and Edward Kelly, when they were performing their rituals, they had a cloud that floated around the room with little people staring at them through it. And so, so what this speaks to me, at least, and this is as I understand it, is that the, the evidence for the extraterrestrial hypothesis is not as founded as a lot of these researchers want it to be. These do seem like spirits that deceive. You know, I'll shut up after that. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, you, you, you definitely zero in on some stuff there, like, uh, like from speaking from kind of like, um, like an, an occult, esoteric perspective. Mm -hmm. um, like you have characters like lamb um that um that, that look exactly like a you know what I say exactly like but very like a gray you know and then equally you have um in rudolf steiner's world uh, a character called uh, ariman and ariman is not great <laughs> to say the least <laughs> No, he's not not a nice no. not a nice energetic force, but he he would um or it would encompass a lot of what you would see as extremely kind of um uh, technical, um arconic, malicious, um mm -hmm. energetic currents. And um and Steiner did a sculpture of, of Araman. And let me um let me just bring those up for you one second. Um you familiar with Lamb at all? You've heard about this? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, cool. we're real tight, <laughs> but yes, I've heard of him. Okay, he was cool. at my birthday the other day. Yeah, <laughs> him and Alistair. No, where are we? Share screen. Here we go. Okay, uh, hey, you see that? Yes, sir. So that's Lamb, and then Ariman here. Interesting. Now, that that image right there. And that image right there is probably more witnessed by experiencers than the other one. Matter of fact, uh, in uh, the match Red of Angels, there was an experiencer. It's, it's kind of funny. What, what kind of synchronicity is that, my friend? Uh, in Mass Red of Angels, somebody had uh, described what that being looks like to a really? team. Yeah, it's quite wow. frightening. Um, yeah. As my research evolves, and it does, you know, the researchers, if they're worth their salt, if they're still stuck, right, 10 years later in that, you know, it's it's not good. It's stagnant, sterile. So so I've attempted to evolve in my hypothesis. And uh, one of the latest evolutions is that I, I believe in the evidence that I've collected suggests, very much so, that the current model of the phenomenon that many are operating off of is incomplete and it is rooted in the fertile soil of its latest incarnation, ET. Yeah. And as I stated before, 
that if we're looking at an intelligence that has evolved according to our awareness of it since the dawn of recorded history, then we have to look at the fact that it was not limited to the cultural perceptions of the time. It's not, okay, what, what are you saying, Nathaniel? It wasn't just someone thought that these beings were demons. The phenomenon allowed them to believe they were demons. Right. People miss that. And they hang, oh, well, yeah, that was just because, it, you know, well, that's a religion. No, time out. In which your literature, when they took these people on demonic flights, the phenomenon catered to the religious creed of the, the practitioner. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what is so interesting to me, at least, is that when you're looking at these case studies, not only do they mirror uh, the UFO abduction phenomenon, but they do it in a, a plethora of ways. Uh, number one, chiefly, number one, uh, the phenomenon would, would pluck witches out of the bed at nighttime and would replace them with a familiar spirit or of a spirit that appears like the woman they just took. Incredible. So as where the husband wakes up in the middle of the night and he looks over and he thinks it's his wife, his wife's not there at all. His wife is whatever these things are. In An Eros and Evil by Ariel Masters, he kind of italicizes this in such a way where it's, it's virtually impossible to miss. He, he lays out this scenario where not all witches, but a, a major, some, most of them, I should say, uh, were being plucked out on these demonic flights, carried away with their lovers or, or whatever you want to call them. But upon landing, uh, the phenomenon would create this theatrical production. And so these women, okay, some of them are used to copulating with corpse or demons, horns and hooves. And so you have this kind of model that the, mani- that the phenomenon is manifesting as. And so they're going through all the motions, all the incantations and the witches sabbat. And then, and then suddenly, boom, something w- would fade in and out in, and this is what I'm calling it loosely, in the program that was being employed. And in some cases, these these women and men too, they would look around and they'd realize this is I'm not on the backside of a mountain, and this is not it's not a devil, it's not a demon, that's not a corpse. Mm-hmm. But they were being poked and prodded by metallic objects that were cold to the touch. Now, this points again. This points to the idea that whatever we're dealing with. And I'm going to throw this out there, is more demonic than a demon and more alien than an extraterrestrial. It is something that is so hyper-aware and so intelligent that it hid itself behind these incarnations and allowed people to believe in these archetypes. And then when when it was ready to evolve, if we as experiencers and researchers made eye contact with it, then it evolves. Why does it evolve, my friend? It evolves in order to evade. And then it changes and then reincorporates certain things back into its agenda. And that's why we have the bloodline of hybridization, both in antiquity, Mesopotamian texts, Akkadian ritual bowls, into the debuks phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. Change these on and on and on. The only thing that's different 
is that it's evolving in a different incarnation. Now, now what modern researchers do, and, I, and I'll shut up after this, but what modern researchers do is they pigeonhole it. And it's almost like they, they, they grope in the gross darkness and, and live their lives researching this current incarnation, not realizing that that has to be understood within the larger context of the phenomenon. Only then will we see its nature in what it considers valuable enough to reincorporate into the newest mask. That's so interesting. And, and I, I suppose that the, the next next area for, for, for consideration is, you know, what is what what do you think is of value to the phenomenon? What does it want? I know it's a really dumb question to ask. <laughs> no, it's really it's really I think it's it's a germane inquiry. You know, there's a lot of researchers that they would have never asked that question, right? They they you know they like I said, they saw a bumper sticker, they've got it all worked out in their head. But you know, upon closer examination, yes, it is self-replication of species. And at least in my research, I've kind of dug out, and I, I, probably poor grammar, but forgive me. Uh, I guess I, I've discovered this behavioral pattern that has united these beings, not just in antiquity, but even with Jeffrey Epstein. And again, I don't want to get too deep into that. Yeah. But, uh, the pathology and the victimology here. See, demons are not what they're called. And, and this is this is going to be so hard for practitioners to understand. Well, I call their names. Okay, fine. That's fine. Okay. But they're not their names. They are what they do. And so early on in my research, you know, and, and I'll tell you what, the latest criticism from Nathaniel Gillis is, uh, wow, you know, he, he's saying all this because it's the it's the model of demonology he inherited from evangelicalism. Lazy. Somebody commented like that. Oh, he got that from church. This is so way beyond that, way beyond. But what I'm saying is that the self-replication of species, it did not originate in Genesis 6. It originated before that. But this, this changing of appearance in order to self-replicate is the common thematic element that unites what I've considered to be the Moulters. Like I said, yes, the phenomenon will diversify its identity, just like a serial killer. But at the end of the day, they're going to be doing the same thing. And I think, and this is just my perspective, if we get rid of the titles and stop compartmentalizing it, we'll see there are bloody footprints in the snow. One of which, and I said all that to say this, one of which is during these incubi encounters, even in UFO abduction accounts, even the debut phenomenon, and even with Jeffrey Epstein, I should say, uh, there is this, this, like I said, a sociological temptation of belief. It's not enough that I manifest to you as someone you would be intimate with. Like I had a case in India where an entity manifested as seven different boyfriends to one woman. And and it was trying again to, to entice her into this physical relationship. But in there's a, there's a Coptic manuscript. This is pretty much the origin of this, uh, this hypothesis and behavioral pattern. But in, in the Coptic manuscript, the Apocryphon of John, the secret book of John, it was a commentary on not just Genesis 6, 
but the origin of the hybridization program in history. Somewhere, we can't really tell you when, but there were beings that began to manifest to women in specific ways. It's very unique. They would manifest to them in the images of their husbands or their lovers. Not just that, but once they, they kind of organized this whole scenario and induced them into this copulating act, they, they still maintained the, the visage, right, that mask, up until the point of consummation. And it was at that moment of insemination that they performed an abstracted tradition. They stared into the eyes of the woman, the female, and then changed their appearance to what they really looked like. Now, this is interesting because the whole purpose of this was to create a carbon copy fetus of the image that was staring into the eyes of the woman. So this was a unique, it's a very, it's a disturbing way of self-replicating their species. And, and we've seen that not just in the Apocryphon of John, but in Incubi literature. And if I could kind of couch the next stage, I don't know how long we have, of my research, I would say that Incubi are not a who. They are a how. Okay. It is the modus operandi, the way of self-replicating their species. And this is why I tend to lead more towards the parasitic model, because every hybrid has to have a host. That's interesting. This is good, this is good stuff, man. If I'm rambling, just tell me to go. Well, that whole thing of like hybridization, like... Um... Yeah. Like it, it was it was a big motif in, in, in some of the, the work I was doing on the weekend, you know. Um because it goes back into antiquity, these cases mm -hmm. are, 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 are and indeed kings claiming, you know, your uh, Sargon of Akkad claimed he, you know, his his, his mother was a changeling, you know, mm -hmm. that, that he was yeah. part whatever. You know, um, and that goes, we find that repetition uh, across the world. And there's always some kind of claim, you know, with of, of kingship or of kind of divine right to rule, which mm -hmm. often, often kind of attributes or. Um, yeah, well, attributes that divine right to rule to the fact that they're not entirely human, that there is some sort yeah. of hybridization somewhere. There is a, yeah, what a fascinating conversation, man. I love, I, this is why I love being on your show. You know, it, it, and it, I'll tell you what, real quick, as a side note to those who are going to watch and listen to this, I'm just super proud of you and what you've done with your channel. And just in talking to you, you've grown. I have too, but you, you've grown. And I think that is a testament to who you are as a person. But getting back to this hybridization program, yes, every hybrid has to have a host. And this is why Bernard of Gordon, one of the earliest demonologists, considered these hybrids to be larvae. What? Weird, weird twist on it. Larvae. And in matter of fact, in demonological literature, the offspring, not just of incubi, but of demons and the devil, they were considered to be effigies. In other words, not just a biological avatar, but quite literally the biological avatar that bears the physical material resemblance of someone who exists or has existed. This is, I'm getting passionate now, man. This is why this research is so vital 
because this is not a new phenomenon. And right. what, what oftentimes this intelligence will do, it will kind of bait researchers into believing it is new. It's a novel manifestation. No, it's a novel incarnation. But again, if you look at the footnotes of history, you see it's present. But when you get into the literature, even with uh, the offspring of, of Satan, the devil, and demons, uh, they existed for, for, I think one demonologist said, for the longest time it was a week, and then the phenomenon would take it. Right. And so when you look at the pathology of possession, which we'll go down here for a second a little bit, uh, pathology of possession, it is not the relocation of consciousness alone. Right? We get that model from Catholicism, nothing wrong with it, but it's an incomplete version of what this phenomenon represents. The pathology of possession is not the relocation of consciousness alone, it's the replication of life. And so there's a reason why these beings wanted to have a biological avatar that looked like them. In, I'll throw that at you and see what to do with it. <laughs> what, what's the purpose of this? Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary. I've, I've, you know, I've never looked at it that way before. Um, I mean, I've always kind of explored the ideas of, of, of kind of, well, what's the purpose of possession? What's the, what's the purpose of, of kind of the interception of demonic beings, whatever you want to call them. Let's just say negative beings rather than kind of the demonic beings that, that kind of, interfere and and um with human beings um in in a negative way that um the purpose conventionally has always been seen it's to drive one away from god to weaken one's resolve yes. to to you know to at the cost of one's soul ultimately you know i know there's, there's a number of different stages for some guests there um but the idea of replication is very very interesting you know uh, and the you know, the truth is, is that like the, the accounts, the folklore, the history, the mythology, all has a vein of that through it. Correct. Correct. And in the Apocryphon of John, it, I was going to say it implied it or suggested, but it was much more concrete than that. It stated that these beings were apparitional in nature. And so they were creating biological avatars. Now, in, on, on, on one hand, you do have the kind of Catholic model of possession, which is what I think you just articulated earlier. Yeah. But if you look at it through the esoteric lens, it is not just the relocation of consciousness. Like I said, it's the replication of life. Matter of fact, mages, this is from The Golden Bow by James Frazier, mages, when they were struck with a mortal wound or they were dying of old age, they would often, ins hold up, watch this guy, you're going to catch it. They would often go and inseminate a woman with a fetus and take that fetus as their own, place their consciousness in it. This, this is called the red rite and the ultimate black mass. And it's, it's all kind of interconnected. But if you look at the phenomenon through that lens, it's just another interconnectivity between ufology, hybridization program, and esotericism, which whatever we're dealing with, it's, it's not only knowledgeable about esotericism, 
it's 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 almost like this intelligence offered these incantations. See, the purpose of the incantation is incarnation, the incarnation of who and what. It's like, we're, you know, I always ask myself this, and again, if I ramble, just like I said, I stayed up all night researching, so it's kind of like, oh, well, it's like, oh, my God. But but when you look at the primordial man, it's not like a man just woke up one day and thought, I'll tell you what I'll do, right? I'll carve the name of an unclean spirit in a small metamaterial metal, and I'll implant that into a body in, in the conscious, and this, this is called teraphim, it's the first implant. Right? Esotericism, necromancy, it's, it's so connected. But it's not like they just woke up one day, my friend, and thought, you know what, I got a, I got a novel idea. No. So there, there is, it's almost like there is an intelligence that, that creates, and I know some uh, demonologists consider this to be, and these are very unique terms, but magical technologies, mm-hmm. where, it, where it's not nuts and bolts. It's consciousness, and whatever this phenomenon represents, it united both of them. No wonder they responded to altars, because those altars are tied to antiquity. It just kind of, for me personally, it broadens the perspective to where we're we're now forced to think outside of the intellectual coffin that uh, many are dying in today. That's fascinating. Really fascinating. But Nate, I've I've really enjoyed this and it's it's always great to talk to you. Uh always enjoyable. Um and I have to ask now, um we're gonna be in Manchester soon. What else have you got going on? Um I have a show that will be released soon with uh what what lurks beneath uh with a Dominic. Very great, great guy. Love to be on with him. That's really it. I got a six lecture series in manchester and then when, when is that uh february 17th it's going to be okay. from i think 9 a.m to like 11 p.m right. but uh right. it, it, guys i know i've been on one today i'm very the thing is i'm i'm information dense because i've been doing research for this this tour yeah so uh anyways my friend thank you so much for having me on and i apologize for rambling to everybody next Not at time all. Not at it's been an absolute pleasure it's always a pleasure to have you on man i am um, we we got to figure out where you're flying into and um, see if we can sh- uh, go for a beer. You know, uh, yeah. that'd, that'd be great be awesome. to catch up. Yeah, uh, it's been many years in the making, so it'd be great to mm-hmm. to catch up. Um, as always, you've been a a wealth of information and insight, and always have an original and interesting perspective. So it's been an absolute Thank pleasure you. to have you on Spirit Box again, man. All right, brother. You have a good night, man. Anybody who wants to find out. Where to find out more about your work? Where's the best place for them to do so? Follow you and, and that kind of thing? Well, there for a while, I had my own show on the League Project channel with Rex Bear. So, you know, you guys, if you guys want to to look more into my research, on my YouTube channel, Nathaniel J. Gillis, there's a playlist of probably 100, if not over 100 lectures and shows. Scroll through them. Uh, you can follow me on my Instagram. I used to have a website. It's too much, man. I got Instagram. I'm off of Facebook. I got Instagram, and and yeah. that's how you guys get a hold of me. But my okay. friend, thank you so much. And uh, I have ADHD, guys, so my mind goes <laughs> everywhere. Squirrel, you know, this is how it is.
It's my pleasure, man. It's my pleasure, man. It's, it's been lovely to have, uh, have you on the show and great to catch up as always, dude. All right, brother. You have a good night. You too, fella. Take care. Thank you, Nathaniel. What a wonderfully interesting show. Really enjoyed that. Such rich food for thought. I hope you guys got a lot for that too. Now, if you want to follow Nathaniel, then do check the links in the show notes. And we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Take care. Talk soon.